Good morning. It is great to see you. Glad you're with us. And I'm not sure how you come in this morning. I'm coming off a two-week kind of away vacation retreat. So I'm a little refreshed uh, and renewed. You might be tired and exhausted. Uh, you may come in this morning bored with life, bored as a Christian, hoping that this service might wake you up a little bit. You might come in here doubtful uh, of Christianity, asking questions, or you might come in here this morning sure of your faith. You might be guilty. You might be ashamed. You might be hopeful. I don't know how you are this morning, but we're glad you're here, and, and we believe that you can come honestly to be a part of this community, and we also believe that every Sunday when we gather, we anticipate that the living God will meet us exactly where we are. Well, so I'm glad you're here. Uh, I'm glad to be back after two weeks away. Glad Timothy and the staff allowed me to get away. Uh, it was a good time for me, a good mixture of family, friends. I had a few days of just alone time where I was able to read the Word, pray, read other books, uh, take a nap when I wanted to take a nap, and uh, dream and plan for our church. And I'm excited about the future, uh, what God has in store for us, and I am feeling personally refreshed and renewed. Uh, we're jumping back in this morning to our in our series of 1 John that we've titled Lo uh, Light and Love. Uh, we're right in the middle of chapter 2. If you were here when we began this series, I said that this letter is written primarily to Christians to give assurance and security in the love of God to us and in our salvation. Uh, the Apostle John has reminded us throughout this letter that by faith in our advocate Jesus, our sins are forgiven. That in Christ we have strength and power to overcome sin so that we can walk in knowledge and fellowship with him. In chapter 2, John has been describing tests of faith. How someone can really know that they know God. Timothy's preached the last two weeks on these tests. The test of obedience and the test of loving one another. This morning we have the third test. It's in three verses of 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 through 17. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we give attention to God's word to us. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And Isaiah reminds us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. You would speak to us where we are, that you would grab a hold of our thoughts, our hearts, our wills, that we would leave here knowing your love and loving you. Lord, thank you that you're with us. In your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, we pulled back into Durham uh, from being gone the past two weeks on Monday night after an eight-hour drive from Alabama. And Tuesday was a day for me to get back in the saddle with work and try to play a little makeup and get ready for the weeks and months ahead. And I was working at my desk early Tuesday morning, and I get a notification popped up on my phone. Doctor's appointment, July 11th, 11.20 a.m. I was like, that's kind of odd. And then I get an email and a text from my wife telling me she made me a doctor's appointment for a general checkup. 
Now, disclaimer, I turned 40 this summer in a few weeks, and so I take this personally. She thinks I'm getting old. She wants me to go to the doctor. She wants me to get tests run, and in my mind, I'm okay. I'm healthy. I mean, I was just with some friends the past few weeks, and i got to tell you, I'm in better health than many of them. And it looks so good. I feel good. Why do I need to go be examined by a doctor and have blood tests, urine tests, whatever other tests they want to run on me? Now, maybe deep down, I'd rather just assume I'm okay and not be examined. I think it can be a form of self-defense, right? There's nothing major going on in my life right now, so why put me through some thorough exam and possibly have something turn up? Well, I started studying this passage and The Lord started to examine my heart and revealed that I, that we, can often do the same thing when it comes to God doing a thorough exam of our lives and of our hearts. We play self-defense. We think we're okay. We start to compare our lives to other people that we know and it makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. We highlight the errors of others so that we can diminish our own errors. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Look at their greed. Look at their self-righteousness. Look at their lack of self-sacrifice. Look at their lack of compassion. Look at their addictions. And in doing this, we play self-defense. We feel better about ourselves, highlighting the sins of others, diminishing our own sin. And this passage is a thorough examination of our hearts. It's a test of our supreme love. Do we supremely love God Or do we supremely love this world? So let me just encourage you to allow this examination to happen to you. Don't resist it. Don't play self-defense by thinking that this sermon is for that person across the sanctuary or up in the balcony or down below or for somebody else you know. This is a test for every single one of us. And it is his grace and kindness to examine us. And by prayer to lead us to repentance, trust, and love of him. John gives us the test in verse 15. He puts it in a negative command. Do not love the world. Do not love the world. Now before we break this commandment down, I have to state what it does not mean. Because I think many people, maybe unknowingly, have misinterpreted this passage and applied it in what I think could be harmful ways. Here's the first thing that this does not mean. It does not mean that we are to not love the created world. Some Christians have believed that if we love God, we're not to love the things of this world. It's been defined as being ascetic, to deny the physical, to to deny the material, and the blessings of the physical and the material. This is not what this means. God created the world. He looked at his creation, sex, food, work, beauty. And God said, this is good. So it glorifies God when you enjoy great music. When you go to Sharp 9 and hear Donovan, who plays drums, play drums, and Autumn sing, or you go to BU Cafe on a Wednesday night and you hear Al, who plays bass, play bass at BU, it glorifies God when we enjoy good music. and enjoy, It glorifies God when We go to Mateo and eat a good meal downtown or Dame's Chicken and Waffles. These things are good. God created them and he gave them to us. And it glorifies them when we enjoy them. doesn't mean to not enjoy his creation. 
Second thing it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that we're to hate the economic and social structures of our society. That if you're a Christian, you're to be anti-government, anti-business, anti-music industry, anti-Hollywood. God gave us economic and social structures for the flourishing of society. Now, we have to realize that all, all things within our society don't cause flourishing. And we have to be aware of these systemic realities. But we aren't to be anti-economic and anti-social structures. Here's the third thing it doesn't mean. is It doesn't mean we're to hate culture. I think this verse has been taken by many to say that we should fight against culture or retreat from culture. I can remember hearing these verses taught when I was just becoming a Christian uh, in my first year of high school and thinking that I needed to go burn all my non-Christian CDs. Everything that wasn't a Christian CD, that's a big dumpster fire. Put, it, put some you know, gas on it, light a flame, everything that wasn't Christian. Christians are not to retreat from culture. We're not to live in these holy huddles surrounded by everything that's overtly Christian. Christian music, Christian books, Christian schools. It's not the point of this verse. So what does it mean to not love the world? I think we have to look at what does it mean then to love it. If that's what it's not to love the world, what does it mean to love it? If you look at the Apostle John in his writings, he, he uses the word world throughout his writings, but here the word world simply means the world as it places itself over against God. It's everything that is in rebellion against God, everything that draws us away from God. And then John describes it three phrases, the desires or lust of the flesh, the first phrase he uses. Desires or lust. The Greek word here is epithumia could be translated lust. It means over-desire or abusing a natural desire. Most often in Scripture, it's used in the realm of sensuality, our senses. So, for example, we have the natural desire of hunger. Some of you may be hungry now and ready to go to lunch. Lust of the flesh is an over-desire for food, resulting in overeating, or eating nice meals all the time, or eating meals that have no nutritional value. God created food, but we can take food and a natural desire for food too far. The same is true for sex. God created sex. It's good. But we have a culture that is obsessed with sex. Magazines, internet, TV, sex is everywhere, and sex sells. I don't know about you, if you at all go to ESPN.com, which is... A daily thing for me. I'm tired of clicking on ESPN.com to see the latest of NBA you know, free agency or the World Cup and seeing photos of ESPN the body issue, which are photos of people not clothed, not nude, but athletes with no clothes on, on ESPN.com. Sex is a good thing, but an over-desire for sex is worldly. And you know you have an over-desire when you allow it to dictate your behavior more than obey God. Our culture flaunts sexuality and sex outside of marriage. It's encouraged. It's applauded. This is worldly. Now, some of you want to stay right here in this examination. You're feeling okay. You're feeling good about yourself. Let's stay in the lust of the flesh. You compare yourself to other people, and they're too sensual. 
they've got the issues with drinking or drugs or sex, and it makes you feel better because you're not pursuing, as one pastor called them, the varsity sins. Uh, Those sins that we knowingly, unknowingly elevate as greater sins than others, but they're really not. I think, in fact, what John is doing here, he's ratcheting up the exam in these next two descriptions of what worldly really means. And God is taking us deeper. Second thing is it's the lust of the eyes. Matthew chapter 6, 22 to 23, Jesus says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. The lust of the eyes. It's the over-desire for the things that we set our gaze, our eyes upon. John Wesley, Methodist Church father, said, this is the internal sense whereby we relish whatever is grand, new, or beautiful. It's seeing something you want so badly, you just have to have it. It's what Scripture calls in other places covetousness, to covet. It could be those new clothes, Those new shoes, that new house, or fixing up that new house. And I'll go ahead and admit that as I've meditated in this this week, this one's been convicting to me because I like beautiful things. And I've already said God is glorified when we enjoy beauty. But I have to be careful personally to not look at that new house or the way that yard is landscaped or to see that family on their new vacation in some beautiful place and covet, want what they have. Our society knows how powerful the eyes are. It's the power of a website, the TV, photos, social media. When you watch Fixer Upper and you see Chip and Jojo fixing up a house, making it look perfect, your eyes behold, I, I, I I need Chip and Jojo to come up at my house. It's why we get magazines in the mail for clothing with perfect-looking models wearing certain clothes that we just have to get. I think this one is maybe the biggest for us. It's seeing that social media post from a friend who is showing off their new whatever or their idyllic life, and we want it. We covet. It's the lust of the eyes. Coveting means multiple things. Let me give you three. Coveting means you feel like you can't be happy without that thing. Other thing it means is you get jealous of people who have it or you resent those that do because you don't. And lastly, you make unwise decisions to obtain those things. As in you put yourself in a financial situation where you go in debt and you're unable to tithe and you're unable to give generously because you just had to have it. You have to ask yourself if the lust of the eyes, the over-desire for the new grand things has a grip on you. And it might be true if you can't afford to be generous and you're giving to the Lord and you're giving to others. Here's the third description of worldly from John. It's the pride in possessions. This also can be translated the pride of life. And I think this might be the deepest of the three statements. This is self-glorification. This is pride in the self. This is the desire to promote the self. This is subtle. Sometimes it's overt, but a lot of times it's subtle. And this can be a pride in your wealth and or your accomplishments. 
It's something that you boast in and find your ultimate security in. What this is doing is you're, you're taking God's blessings on you and making it your boast. Putting out your blessings for everybody to see. Hashtag I'm blessed. Right? But in reality, you're saying, hey, world, friends, family, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, look how great I am. It's the pride of life. You want people to see how awesome you are. It's the subtle thought of I'm better than others. This pride can be because of which family you're from, what job you have, which talent you hold, what school you attended or or will or are currently attending which school your children attended or have it, uh, or will attend how much money you have in your bank account what activities you're involved in what activism you're involved in the pride of life i'm better let me just interject here and say that the pride of life can be held by a corporate body as well as individuals i.e. the church We could be a church that prides itself on knowledge more than we do knowing our God. We could be a church that prides itself on how engaged we are in the city more than how much our God is changing us and the one who will ultimately change the city. We could be a church that prides itself on how much money we have in our bank account rather than our generosity. I pray this is never true of us. I pray for myself and for you and for our church. One of my favorite verses from Galatians 6.14 where Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our boast. John not only tells us what loving the world looks like, he also gives us incentives, reasons we should obey this command. Reasons to not love the world. Look at the first reason. Verse 15, it's it's that love of God and love of the world are incompatible Verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Similar to Matthew 6, 24, where Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Or as Matthew Henry put it, the heart is narrow. It cannot contain both the love of God and the love of the world. So you have to ask yourself, what is my supreme love? What's my supreme love? Not just in profession, not just in the words you use, but in how you live your life, how you spend your time, where your thoughts drift off to, what you dream about, what you fantasize about. Are they things of God or are they things of this world? Now, I've got to repeat that this does not mean to despise the created world or society or culture. What it means is a right ordering of our loves. Is God supreme? If so, then we can and we should enjoy, even love the things of this world, as long as we love them for his sake and his glory, not our vain self-glory. Here's the second incentive. The world is perishing. God and the things of God are eternal. Look at verse 17. The world's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John is saying the things of this world are disappearing. They're dying. You might be proud of your personal appearance now, but soon you're going to be old and you're not in such good shape. Our bodies aren't going to work in our old age the way they do in our youth. 
Some of you are like, amen. My shoulder hurts. My foot hurts already. Body just goes downhill the older you get. The shiny new things that we buy, that we just have to have, will get old and will be out of style in a few years. The money you've acquired, as my mom's always told me, you can't take it with you. The knowledge you've acquired, one day you'll forget, and your mind will not be as sharp as it is today. All of these things have the seeds of death in them. So why can we be so foolish to glory in the things of this world that are so transient? God is eternal. His kingdom is eternal. The things of this world will pass away. Here's the thing. If we love the world, then we are denying, if we're a Christian, the very life of Christ that lives within us. This whole letter, John's been talking about fellowship with God, a walk with God, communion with God. That as Christians, Christ is in us and we are in him. Christ in you, you in Christ. This unbelievable union and communion that we have by faith in him. We have the fullness of the riches of Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians, every spiritual blessing is ours. But by loving the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, we're living like we're spiritually impoverished, settling for less when we have the riches and the fullness of Christ. Imagine you were to inherit a bank account of $100 million, and you're aware of this treasure. You receive weekly statements reminding you of your cash balance, $100 million which is what we do every week, by the way, when we come in here on Sunday mornings as a church, reminded of our riches in Christ and all that we have in him. You have this balance, but then you go into your week and you live paycheck to paycheck, never drawing on your fortune. From one point of view, you're exceedingly wealthy, but you remain poor. You don't live in, like you know God. You don't live into your wealth. It's like living on a tent on a piece of land that you own while millions of dollars worth of oil runs underneath and you never draw on your wealth. We're offered life with and in Christ. And by faith we draw from a well that never runs dry. Life with Christ. Have you ever examined Jesus' life? He was never guilty of sins of the flesh. He was never too sensual. Jesus did not run after the new shiny and grand things. Jesus did not care about the pomp and the show and appearance so others could see him. Jesus was humble and boasted only in that which honored his father. Jesus was meek and low, pure and holy, the very antithesis of that which is applauded in our world. Jesus was born in a stable, parents of poverty, worked as a carpenter. He is the savior of our souls. This is the life that we claim lives in us. And Jesus taught us how to live into his life. The Sermon on the Mount, in particular the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Rich are the meek. Satisfied. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is the rich life, the full life. You overcome the world by living into the life of Christ, which is ours by faith. 
what John's been saying throughout this letter. Be assured of God's love. Enjoy the fellowship you have with God. Jesus lives in you. Our responsibility is to cultivate our experience of God's love and Christ's life in us. So there are virtues or practices that we can live into as Christians. One of them is reading the Bible. I mean, name a few others. Prayer, the sacraments that we celebrate every Sunday, solitude, getting alone, community, fasting, suffering. Just a few. That's why we suggested to read the book Liturgy of the Ordinary this summer. Highly recommend reading it. it it's a book on how to cultivate life with Christ in the day in and day out. Practices to draw from this well the riches of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon famously said that the reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. In Christ Central, I believe, I really believe that we as individuals and we as a community as we cultivate our experience of God's love and the life of Christ in us, therefore loving God over the world, we will then be a people who are impacting and transforming this city of Durham and the world. I deeply believe that. David Livingston, one of my heroes, missionary to Africa in the 19th century, wrote something in 1857 that I think is still needed for our ears today. This is what Livingston said. He said, people talk of the sacrifice that I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice, which has simply paid back a small part of a great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice Say, rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Church, it might feel like a sacrifice, sacrifice at times to not love the world. But it's really a greater life. It is a privilege that by grace we can know God, really know him, in the fullness of his salvation. That we know God and we love God as we live as a people who are interested not in the wealth of this world, but in the riches of glory. Not in the knowledge of this world, but in the knowledge of God. Not in the associations that, that we're proud of because we're in the right crowd of our choosing, but because we belong to the people of God, his church. Not because we crave the honor of a great name, but because we know we have the honor of a heavenly father who will one day, someday say to those of us who supremely love him, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy, enter the riches of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you would overcome us with your love so that we can overcome our own love of this world. God, I pray that we would see Christ and know the, 
the life we have with you. How high and wide and deep is your love that abounds to us, that nothing can separate us from your love, that we would live into this, that we would draw from this well that never runs dry, that we would not love this world more than we love you. I pray that this table that we come to now would help do just that, help us to experience your love so that we could love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.